Om Namo Narayanaya. This is a recording of a talk of James Swartz on the Bhagavad Gita at Yoga Vidya Bad Meinberg near Hanover in Germany. Sarashivasamarambam Shankaracharyamajamam Asmadacharyapayantam Vande Guru Paramparam Ishwaro Guradmeti Murti Beda Vibhagine Chapter 10, the idea is to... <coughs> Uh, see the Lord means yourself in uh, in all the objects. This will complete your spiritual, more or less complete your spiritual education. This is an absolutely necessary step. You can't skip this step. People always want the short, easy, fast trip to enlightenment. But there's no short, fast, sweet, easy trip. You have to go through all the stages. It's really important to know this. You know, you're lazy, you don't want to do the work, so you think, well... I'll just do the last bits. <laughs> it's like uh, trying to say, well, I want to get a PhD, but I, I uh, you know, I want to be a doctor of philosophy, but I don't want to go to high school and grade school. I think I'll just go to university. I'll just go get my PhD, and then that's it. Well, how's that going to work? It's not going to work. You have to have a solid foundation before you can understand what E equals MC squared, what it means. <laughs> you can read some popular book, and then you can say, oh, I know E equals MC squared. E equals MC squared means uh, energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. I know that. Well, yeah, you... <laughs> You know, that that's all you know. You have no idea what that means. And you can, you can say, I'm enlightened, I'm yourself, it over and over and over again like a parrot. I'm the self, I'm the self, I'm the self, I'm the self. <laughs> and not know what it means at all. You need this, this training. This whole infrastructure, spiritual infrastructure is there to get you up to speed, prepared to understand this. You can't, cannot emphasize this too much, particularly in this text. That's what this text is about. This text is to qualify you. It tells you what, where you're going, but it also tells you how to get there. Other texts do not mention karma yoga or upasana yoga. Uh, next... Uh, 
in a week or so, I'm going to do a seminar in Bavaria on uh, Viveka Chudamani. There, there's basically, there's a discussion of the qualifications, but basically there's no discussion of karma yoga at all. It's just a pure method of discrimination that's unfolded in that work. In Panchadasi, which is the most advanced uh, spiritual text, uh, the most uh, sophisticated and the most comprehensive of all of Vedanta's texts, there's no mention of Karma Yoga. It's not there. There's no talk about Upasana Yoga either, meditating on the forms of Ishwara. It's all nididyasana, shravana manana nididyasana. It's all what? Pure Vedanta. And it just discusses the whole methodology, the whole teaching in absolute detail. But it assumes that you've already done all this. It assumes that you what? You've, you had your karma yoga in place and your mind is pure. And it assumes that you... You know, you don't have any issues with, with the world. This whole talk about whole talk about Ishwara is just about your issues, your problems in life. It's trying to correct your relationship to your environment, to your family, to your friends, to society in general. <coughs> to get your get your uh, attitude and your relationship to to the objective world um, sorted out and then it's easy to <clears throat> uh, assimilate the Vedanta knowledge so it's a it's a it's a definite progression the Gita is all laid out with that in mind and all the texts say the same thing so you can't skip. <laughs> you can't jump from one uh, and say, "Oh no, I don't. That's uncomfortable. That's too much. I don't like that. I'm not going to do it." Because if you if you avoid any one of these topics, then it it, it it no matter how far you progress on this end, you'll have to come back and deal with it eventually. So you might as well just start at the beginning and patiently and consistently, you know get your whole sadhana sorted out. Have your karma yoga practice. Check your lifestyle. Make sure you're, 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 swad, you're following your swadharma. Make sure you learn how to enjoy your work because you love what you do. Uh, correct all your relationships with the people in your lives. Mom and pop and those people you resent. Those people you blame. Be okay with the government. Be okay with all the people who are polluting the environment. Be okay, huh? <laughs> Be okay with the religious nuts. My friend was just telling me he was standing in line in the in the in the kitchen in here in the in the cafeteria, and a woman told him that she didn't exist. She said, "I don't exist." And he said, well, I can see you. It's, you're talking to me. It seems you do exist. She got angry with him. 
she got angry. <laughs> what do you say? The world's full of, of really stupid people. <laughs> I mean, seriously stupid. There's teachers that are just as stupid. Tony Parsons will stand right in front of you and with a straight face with a hundred people and he'll say, I don't exist, you don't exist. And then he'll fall silent. Huh? You gotta be okay with all this. Huh? If you're not okay with it, you're not okay with yourself. That's the point. Huh? You've got the world is never going to be what you want it to be. Everything's following its nature. Everything's the way it's supposed to be. And so you need to get that sorted out. Otherwise, you can study all the Vedanta you want and have all the epiphanies you want, but what? You'll still be uncomfortable in this world. <coughs> and the whole point of, of Vedanta is to enjoy the world. That's the whole point. Why? Because the world is nothing but you. We're, we're not doing this for any other reason than to live enjoyable lives. Uh, to have pleasure and enjoy your life. And you can't enjoy your life if you have issues with the world. So, he's pointing out here that what the world is And, and, and that the world is not your responsibility. Understand? What the world is is not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to know who you are. That's what Krishna says over and over and over again. Your duty is to what? To know who you are. To commit your mind to self-inquiry uh, and to practice discrimination. You're, you're, you have no business with the world. You're interfering with Ishwara. Ishwara made the world. <laughs> Ishwara sustains the world, and Ishwara destroys the world. So that's Ishwara's business. It's not your business. Your business is to accommodate yourself to the world. Did you <clears throat> remember this? I, I, I mentioned how important it was. But in chapter 10, in the fourth and fifth verses, it's talking about values or, or things that, that are useful to you spiritually. And there's one value which is really top on one of the top lists of the Vedanta sadhanas. It's a sadhana. It means it's a spiritual practice. That you should really, you should be, understand the value of this practice and you should practice it all every day. And that's called accommodation. You know, we we want the world to accommodate to us. Right? You, you want the world to cater to your desires and your fears. But the world, as Ishwara said in here, he said, I don't care what you want. I don't care. I, uh, this is what I've presented to you. This is how the world is. It's full of beauty and it's full of ugliness. That's, I've created that. 
you have some beauty in you and you have some ugliness in you. And that's, I put that there, that's not your problem. You shouldn't identify with that. You need to accommodate yourself to <clears throat> your body and your mind and your past and your family and your boss and your parents, your children. You're all, all, you have to accommodate yourself to that. Because <clears throat> it's not going to change because you don't like it. Because you want it to be different. And if you haven't made peace with the world, then the world means Ishwara. If you haven't made peace with the world, then uh, you're never going to be peaceful. So he's explaining to you why. He just tells you how the world is created and who creates it and, and who's the author of the world and who sustains it and who destroys it and it isn't you. So that means that's not your business. Your business is to what? To accommodate yourself to the world. <clears throat> That's a tough one, isn't it? That's really hard. Because I want... I, my feeling is that if the world is, is, is happy, then I can be happy. I was, I was watching this YouTube video by this guru some years ago. Just a short little clip. And he said, he was a really angry guru. He was so totally angry. It was unbelievable. I, I would have embar been embarrassed to let anybody take a picture of me when I was in such a state of anger. But he thought his anger was really cool. In fact, he was appealing to people who really thought the world was a mess. And he said, he said, I'm totally furious and angry, and I will not stop being angry till the world gets, gets straight, and it's my job to straighten the world, to fix the world. That's why I'm angry, because the world's a mess, and I'm here to fix it. Well, good luck. <laughs> he, he didn't fix it very well. Actually, the world fixed him. <laughs> Ishwara fixed him. Oh. Huh? Yeah, brought him down. No, he's not a guru anymore. Lost everything. Lost all his power. Lost a big. Lost all his money. All everything. His position, status, everything. Boom. Finished. <clears throat> he's messing with the world. He's bossing his devotees around, giving them, punishing them for beating their egos down and all this sort of thing because, oh, your ego, that's ugly, that's bad. And he thinks that if you're okay, then he'll be okay. I can't be okay till you're okay. So I'm going to make sure you're okay first and then I can be happy. Totally backwards. I, huh, I need to see that, that this is beyond my power. I'm not here to fix it. I'm here to understand it and accept it and see that what? Ishwara created it. Yes, sir? What about personalities like Gandhi who were opposing to something? Yeah, he was a do-gooder. Gandhi wasn't the happiest guy alive. Huh? <laughs> Gandhi had a lot of problems. 
I mean, yeah, he, he was serving a, a certain function in the world. He was like an Ishwara uh, instrument, but he wasn't that happy a person. You you can tell by his writings and things he said and so forth. And that, if it's his job, if it's your job to do that, if you're that kind of a person, then go ahead. But Gandhi was not enlightened by any manner of means. You know? He was just driven by this need to rectify a situation. And he was what the, he was at the forefront of, of a lot of people. There were millions of people behind him, so he was like he was like a product of Ishwara, you could say. Or he brought about some kind of, or, or was the spearhead for some massive amount of change. But can you say India is better off now than it was under the British? I don't know how many upper class Indians I met that said, we were a lot better when the British were ruling us. Huh? What's that? Yeah, I, I heard it in other countries where the British were. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, so, you know, anyway, he wasn't going for moksha. So he can change the world if he wants to. <laughs> we're not we're not trying to change ourselves or the world. We're trying to understand the truth. See? That's a different thing. So insofar as we're in a world and we're functioning, then we need to learn to right accommodate it. That's the whole point of that value. Yes. But but the question is how far do you want to accommodate? Let's say you see in front of your eyes okay, that's cruelty, a, yeah. injustice, so forth and so on. Are, is it the right thing to accommodate to that and just say Ishwar? Well, no, business? no, that's right. Okay, that's a good question. Not without discrimination. Sometimes you have to stand up and fight. That's what Arjuna, that's what Krishna is telling him here. But you have to understand why, why you're doing it. And, and in this case, it, the, the problem was unsolicited. In other words, Arjuna wasn't out there looking to change the world. Huh? Ish, Ishwar didn't, he didn't want to go to war. Uh, he was forced to by that violation of Dharma, by all of his friends and family saying, you have to fix this situation. So he was accommodating himself to a good principle. There's no, you can, you, you know, there are the do-gooders and the world changers. Uh, and it's always a, it's a, and if you do see Dharma violated, and you get angry, that's a justifiable anger. Huh? <laughs> you shouldn't feel, if you see somebody, you know, abusing somebody else and you feel angry, that's a normal, that's a very, very normal, healthy reaction. Right? No problem there. Huh? But, but what we're just, what we're saying is, if, when you have some sort of incompleteness in yourself, when you, huh? When it's driven not by dharma, but when it's driven by some sort of psychological weakness or insufficiency. If I'm trying to like make myself feel virtuous. Huh? In America, we have this thing. You probably have it here too. The same idea. The whole to make everybody. To people love to make themselves feel good, and you know how they do it. When they ask what ask what they're doing, they say, oh, "I'm making a difference." means what? I'm fixing the world. 
Huh? That's, that's meant to be a sign of virtue. They say that to make themselves feel good and to make other people think they're good people. You know, it doesn't matter what they're doing. They just, huh? So it depends upon your motivation. No, you're right. There are certain things that need to be confronted. And that is a proper accommodation to strike back at the right time. In other words, the world is asking for a certain response here. Uh, Duryodhana is asking for a response, isn't he? He's provoked the world. He's, made, he's, he's cheated. He's lied and he's cheated. And he's created a huge problem for a lot of people because of his lies and his cheating. So he's asking for a response. So then the, the dharmic, the, the right response is what? To, to attack him, to confront him, to destroy that person. That's the right response. Because if you allow that sort of thing to continue, then what? The whole world is going to go, you know, go to pieces. Everybody will be just full of fear and looking over their shoulders. It'll be a police state. Look what happens in these police states. Everybody's full of fear. I was reading uh, during the Gulf War. I was reading about this this uh, secret serv- that one of Saddam Hussein's, uh, uh, you know, uh, minders, policemen. He had many people uh, protecting him. He had a whole army of people protecting him because so many people wanted to kill him. And uh, he, one of his bodyguards went to have his hair cut. And uh, the, the, the barber just made a small joke about Saddam Hussein. And the next day he was dead. Barber was dead. Just made a small, pleasant little joke. Dead. So uh, if somebody had to stand up to these kind of people. And so that's an appropriate response. And that is accommodating to the situation but always with discrimination. And look at your motivation. Because you're never going to eliminate the evil in the world. (laughs) That's never going away. Ignorance is hardwired. It's been here forever. You do what you do, and you do what you can, but you don't look for problems to solve. (laughs) Because I've got a different problem. Hmm? I want to know who I am. That's my problem. <clears throat> and that doesn't involve fixing uh, that doesn't involve fixing the world. So always with discrimination you have to accommodate. So you're you're right. That's a good point. I was overemphasizing the other point cuz so many people in the spiritual world think that that spirituality is doing good to the world. But Vedanta says here, you've seen three or four statements in here, that an inquirer is not interested in merit and demerit. We're, that, that, that a yogi is not interested in good karma or bad karma. Huh? He, he doesn't, want good ka- doesn't want bad karma and he doesn't want good karma either. See? Now that's a weird statement, isn't it? Huh? When you think about it. Isn't that strange? Why wouldn't you want good karma? Because <laughs> you don't want, you want to go beyond karma. 
and dharma. You're looking for what's beyond karma and dharma. So you're not trying to like accumulate good karma here or avoid bad karma here. You're trying to get out of here altogether. <laughs> that's that's what freedom is. Freedom is 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 getting out of this karma dharma world. So and at the same time I do I am living here and I do have to accommodate myself to it in various ways. But I need to like constantly be uh, alert to my motivations. Why am I doing this? What do I hope to achieve? Is this really in harmony with what I really want? And will I be happy if I fix some small problem in the world? Or will this desire in me to fix some problem in the world just create another problem that I have to fix in the world? And isn't that desire to fix the world really a desire to fix me? Don't I really want the world to be different because it will make me different? And then why do I want to be different from what I am? Can I be different from what I am? Who made me? Who am I? Right? So all your thinking should go like this, not be fixated on what? Changing the subject or the object, but in understanding. That's what we're saying. And when you understand clearly, right, what the self is, what the world is, what the relationship between the self and the world is, then what? Those doubts or those problems go away. And then it's clear. Then everything's clear. Clear knowledge is just clear seeing. And and you ha there's no problems anymore with the world or with yourself. You have, you know, you have infinite love for yourself and you have infinite love for the world because it's the same. That's what non-duality means. But we have to understand why. And so that's why we have the teaching. So now in this, in this chapter, in chapter 11, uh, The Gita is going to present um, the idea that the, the ugliness in the world is also Ishwara. And, and to what? To not accept the ugliness what means that your vision of non-duality is not complete. We're not saying you have, you have to like it or dislike it. We're going to say that you have to understand how it is and why the world can't be different from what it is. If the world could be different and was supposed to be different, it would be different. But it can't be different. Huh? That's why it's the way it is. Because it can't be any other way. Understand? Evil and good are always there. Good is, is defined by evil. Isn't it? And evil is defined by good, isn't it? Neither one of those principles huh, are independent of the other. Just like desire and fear. Good and evil are what? Duality, dwandwas, dualities occurring 
in this Dharma field. They're moral dualities, fear and desire, psychological issues. What? A fear, what? What is a fear? What's the relationship between a fear and a desire? A desire is a negative fear, and a fear is a positive. A, a desire is a positive fear, and a fear is a negative desire, isn't it? Because wherever you have a desire, you have a fear, don't you? If you want something, you're afraid what that you aren't going to get it. And when you get it, you what? You're afraid that you're going to lose it. <laughs> it's so bad, isn't it? Now. Huh? And good depends upon evil, and evil depends upon good. Where's the line? Some evil actions have very good consequences, and some very good actions have very bad consequences. Uh, one of the symbols I like uh, that addresses this issue is the yin and the yang. It looks, if you just look at it superficially, it looks like there's a white yin, I mean a white yang and a black yin. So you think, well, the world is like what? It's either light and dark. It's good and evil. It's up and down. It's right and left. It's in and out. It's duality. That's what it looks like. But in that white yang, there's a little black dot, isn't there? And in that black yin, there's a little white dot, isn't there? Now what does that mean? That means the white yin is going to, that little black dot in the white yin is going to expand, huh? and the white is going to disappear into what? Into a little dot, and the white's going to become black, and the black's going to become a little dot. And the reverse is going to happen on the other side. means what? They're both the same, looking at the same... What comes first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> What's, at what point is a thing good and at what point is a thing evil? Where, how, where do you draw the line? So what he's saying here, what Krishna is saying here in this vision is that everything hmm, serves me. Serves the self. The good serves the self and the evil serves the self. So when something bad happens, look for the upside. When something good happens, look for the downside. <laughs> There's no way you're going to get all upside or all downside here. It's not going to happen. Never did happen. It can't because the whole Dharma field is set up in this way. So, if I can't be comfortable with the dark side of myself, I've got a problem. If I only have to live in the light and think of myself as only a pure spirit being, and I have to what? Suppress all of that negative part of myself, I'm going to be a very conflicted person. Like did Andrew Cohen, that guru. He thought he was the white knight in shining armor. He thought he was just a big mass of light. 
He was all focused on how righteous and pure and holy and good he was. Uh And I was this dark side operating all the time that he was just ignoring. Dark side injuring people. Injuring himself, but he couldn't even see himself because he was so fascinated with his holiness and his goodness and his enlightenment. And on the other side is this dark side continually pumping out all this anger and aggression and violence on these people. You have to accommodate all of it. The good side and the bad side. See see what it, in, in that yin-yang, what do you have? It's in a circle, right? The yin-yang is what? In a circle. That circle symbolizes the self. Infinity. No beginning and no end. A circle has no beginning and no end. Right? Just like the self has no beginning and end. And in that self, in that beginningless and endless self, are these two light and dark forces playing all the time, operating all the time, forever. So I have to, I need to, you know, get this clear and understand this. And this particular chapter is a symbolic, understand now, I told you, the Gita is a Purana, it's, it's actually an Itihasa, but it's, Itihasa is a Purana. So Itihasa is a Purana that apparently have some historical meaning. And uh, in any case, it's a Purana and it's a symbol. So don't think, don't think when you read this that the Darshan, Ishwat Swarupa, it's called, the Darshan of the total, the revelation of the total, comes in the form of what? A particular visual or spiritual experience. Is using this this spiritual experience, quote-unquote, as a metaphorical way to present this idea that I've explained to you. So you need to understand it that way. It's, it's, it's a fairly simple uh, thing. But it's very dramatic. <laughs> He's the, the the Gita is you know this is an entertaining text really. It's a very, it's not one of these dry uh, texts that that just you know for the intellectuals and for the jnanis. It's got it's got it all in here. It's juicy. It's sexy. It's got the whole nine yards, and it's supposed to be that way. Why? Because he's talking to people who are still in the world. Arjuna's still in the world. And people who are in the world, they're what? They're still fascinated by the world. We're trying to get out of the world, but part of us is still fascinated. Isn't that right? Isn't part of you still attracted to the world? Huh? Isn't there some part of you that would just like to, huh? Get out there and really, hmm, have yourself a good old time, yum yum. <laughs> huh? <laughs> yeah, there is. <laughs> <laughs> so he's he's presenting it in this way. So, but don't don't you know? Don't think somebody asked me. He read my autobiography. He said, "Well, do I have to have all these spiritual experiences to to get moksha? Because you got moksha and you had all these spiritual experiences." And the answer is no. And and this this same idea is presented in other texts in a very simple, cut and dried, non emotional way. But here he's talking to a jiva, and you're going to see the emotional reaction of Arjuna. Arjuna has three emotions, emotional reactions to this experience. 
that Krishna has given to him. And, and we'll see what those uh, three emotional reactions or responses to this knowledge is. So we'll just read it more or less and where there's something interesting or important, I'll stop and explain it. But it's fairly straightforward. And it's actually pretty funny. Uh, it actually there's a really good sense of humor here, which is what I really like about Ishwara and Vedanta. There's there's always a good sense of humor operating. Because hmm? these jnanis, these people who know the truth, they huh, they're funny people. They really are. They're really cool people. All of them. Every yani I met always had a good sense of humor. So Veda Vyasa is making it. You'll see the way he's written it here. It's quite entertaining, actually. <clears throat> so this is the vision of the cosmic form. Don't get, don't get, again, don't get excited. Don't think, oh my God, this is. A, if I haven't had this experience, then I'm no nobody. You know, I, years ago I, I went was in the city yoga ashram in Ganesh Puri, where Baba Muktananda was the guru. And Baba Muktananda claimed, uh, his claims, well, we don't know about his claims, but in any case, he claimed that before he got enlightened, he had the experience of the blue pearl. Did you ever hear that? Didn't anybody hear about that? Oh, yeah, you heard it. Yeah. yeah, one or two people. I'm showing my age. That, that was the old days. Muktananda, most blood people haven't heard of City Yoga, they haven't heard. Uh, and... Uh, because that was my generation. That is huh? That is the blue okay, what is the blue pearl? <laughs> <laughs> the blue pearl... <laughs> the blue pearl is a, an experience you're supposed to have before you get enlightened. If you don't have this blue pearl experience, <laughs> then you won't get enlightened. That's, that's what he said. Because... He claims that before he got enlightened, he had the blue pearl experience. So he was telling everybody that you need to have the blue pearl experience to get enlightened. Now, huh? Now, I I don't know what the I've had plenty of spiritual experiences. I never had the blue pearl. <laughs> but, uh, so, so, and it's very strange because. Uh, I mean, the man had to be a little bit crazy because you're not producing these spiritual experiences, are you? Huh? If if you were the if you were the one who was producing the spiritual experiences, you'd produce them and you'd have the blue pearl experience, wouldn't you? Ishwara presents certain experiences to you at a certain time to what? to lead you on, to give you an idea, to give you faith, to do something. For There's some reason for these things. And Ishwara produces those spiritual experiences. It, it, if you're not meant to get them, if your guru had that experience and you're not meant to get it, you're just going to be frustrated wanting that experience because you're never going to get it. Cause, you know. But he made it sound like it was mandatory that anybody that got enlightened had to have the blue pearl. So there are all these people in the ashram trying to get the experience of the blue pearl. 
And that's all they talked about. And, and there were there were the fakers. Because huh, they wanted to get status in the ashram. So they would say, oh, and then they'd describe a long thing, then I, and then I saw the blue pearl. <laughs> and then other people would get jealous of them and envious of them and start talking about them, which is what they wanted. They wanted everybody to think they were like more spiritually evolved because they'd seen the blue pearl. They'd had this... Huh? What? Yeah, it's something you experience. It, it, you, it, there are three dimensions of reality. There's the Paramartika dimension. That's called pure awareness. That's called pure consciousness. You only see awareness there. You don't see awareness, you are awareness. And since you are awareness, there's just awareness. There's no experiences there. They call that Nirvikalpa Samadhi, or Nirvana. There's just, just pure light. Awareness, consciousness. That's called Paramartika Satyam. Then there's Vyavaharika Satyam. That's the empirical reality. That's, that's Ishwara. That's the sun, the moon, the stars, air, fire, water, earth, the what? The eight principles we saw in chapter 8. He said, these are the eight principles of my lower nature. Those are material principles that are operating here. He, he just defined those. Eight <coughs> principles. Those are always true. Those are truths. They're called tatwas. They're truths. They're always operating. They're eternal principles. And, and you can count on those things. Hmm? They're called tatwas. And everybody huh, agrees on those. Like, does anybody say that the light is not shining in this room? Maybe that girl in the, in the, uh, the line who doesn't exist will say the light doesn't exist. <laughs> but but huh, everybody agrees that the light is shining in this room, don't they? Does anybody not? Good, we've got everybody's okay here. <laughs> so I'm going to have to ask you to leave if you don't, because <laughs> then you won't be seeing that, what I'm hearing, what I'm saying either. Because what I'm saying is viavaharika. There are words you're hearing; those words, you know, there's something happening here. It's called the transactional reality. Here, there's no transactions because there's nothing other than awareness. So you can't transact, you can't communicate, you can't experience here. In the Vyavaharika Satyam, what is there? There's objects, and they behave impersonally and scientifically because they're what? Controlled and regulated and governed by Ishwara. It's called objective or scientific reality. So that's Vyavaharika, or empirical, transactional, scientific reality. And then in the middle, between Paramartika Satyam and Vyavaharika Satyam, there's a dimension called Pratibhasika Satyam. And that's the subjective reality. That's your own mind. And that mind like, interprets things. It's the dream, well, you could call it the dream state. You call it the dream state. It interprets 
And in that reality, a particular kind of mind can generate experiences that are as real to that mind when it's in that state as the empirical reality is here. A person who's in that state, whatever they see is absolutely real for them, just as if, what, in a dream, when you're in a dream, don't you take it to be real? You don't know it's a dream until you wake up, do you? When you're in it, you take it to be real. Well, in this waking state is a dream state. <laughs> That's called pratibhasika satyam. And if your mind is in that state, whatever happens in that state, you think it's real, even if your eyes are open and even if nobody else sees it. All the people in Vyavaharika won't see it. But you'll see it and it will be real to you. And if you tell them that you see it, they'll say, what have you been smoking? <laughs> Wouldn't you like me to call the little men with the white coats? I think you need your meds. Huh? If others are in this state, can they see it? If what? If others are in the same state, can they see it? No. No. Uh, depending, uh, depend, uh, yeah, yes and no. If they're completely tuned up, if both minds are completely tuned to the same thing, then yes, sometimes both can see the same thing. A magicians can create that state. Uh, magicians can create that state with sleight of hand and put you in a condition where, put the whole audience in a condition where they actually see somebody in the old Indian rope trick. They used to, the guy would climb up the rope and disappear and everybody would see him disappear because he put them all in pratibhasika satyam, got everything set up. It's a kind of hypnotic state. And then what? And then you don't see it when the guy jumps off the rope because your attention is elsewhere. You're seeing what he's created for you in your mind and you don't see what's actually happening in Vyavaharika reality. And so and then you're like amazed. What happened to him? He disappeared. So this blue pearl is in that, this, this, all your spiritual experiences are in that dimension. It's called pratibhasika satyam, the subjective dimension. And those experiences are not generated by you, they're generated by Ishwara. All experiences generated by Ishwara. But they seem to be really, really real. And then this guru claims he, he had this experience and then shortly after he enlightened, was it after he got enlightenment, then he, he made a connection between what? That experience and the experience of what he said was enlightenment. Yes, there's some sort of justification for that belief because very often when you do sadhana, you, you intense sadhana, you can create, you create spiritual experiences. This is why the Siddhi Pad in the Yoga Sutras comes after the Sadhana Pad, the section on, on Siddhis or spiritual experiences and spiritual powers comes after the section on Sadhana, on, on doing the work, because your mind gets a certain kind of power in it, a certain kind of state, and then it generates certain kinds of experiences and powers for you. And and so, um, so there's... Uh, 
but it's it's a particular dimension of reality and it's experiential and it's not real okay <laughs> it's not real no matter how real it seems it's not real it begins and it ends it's an object known to you to awareness and what and it's not the self it's the self manifested in a particular kind of mind so here here to give to to present this knowledge that Ishwara is everything, uh, he's presented it in this particular experiential form, in the form of a spiritual experience. Okay. But, again, I just want to make that clear. You know, I, I'm sorry I have to talk so much about it, but there's a part of everybody that just wants to have one of these, these amazing spiritual experiences. Huh? I, I don't know, that's a question I get more, almost more than anything. You know, the people who've had them want more of them and wonder why they go away, and the people that haven't had them want them. Very few people say, I could care less about spiritual experiences. Very few people. But most of the people that get moksha are people who haven't had spiritual experiences. Because they can hear what's being said here and they're not distracted. Because this is very simple. It's, in, 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 in Vedanta, there is not one experiential qualification listed for moksha in any of the texts. Not one. Every single qualification is what? A quality of the mind. It's a quality of the personality of the mind. You, you can be a dull little accountant sitting in a back room counting beads and get enlightened. And you can be this most flaming wild spiritual person with all these experiences and never even get close to enlightenment. So the qualifications are different here. They're, the spiritual experience doesn't qualify you. It doesn't disqualify you and it doesn't qualify you. It's just a dream state. So he's using it in that sense. So he says, Chapter 11, Vision of the Cosmic Form. Arjuna said, Your compassionate words concerning the nature of the Supreme Self have dispelled my delusion, O oh, my Lord. Well, sort of. You have described in detail the creation and dissolution of things and your eternal majesty. I am certain you've described yourself correctly, but, <laughs> you know when they say that? When they always say something nice and then they say, but? <laughs> <laughs> it's not true. <laughs> yeah, it's not true. It's not, huh? <laughs> I'm certain that you've described yourself correctly, but means I don't believe it. I want more. <laughs> yes, but. Yes, but is the biggest Huh? Oh my God, that, there's a little monster in everybody. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. Constantly. But, now I would like to see your divine form as the Lord of all things and beings. If it's possible to reveal your imperishable self, please do so now. 
Krishna replied, Since it's impossible for you to see with ordinary eyes, these two eyes here, I will now give you an extraordinary eye, one that will allow you to see all my glory. This is the divine eye or the third eye. And you know what the third eye is? Scripture. That's the eye that gives you the vision of non-duality. That's what's the meaning of jnana. It's called jnana chakshu. It's the eye of knowledge. And it means the scripture. This is the eyes for consciousness. Understand? It's not some mystical thing. Believe me. Has some of you ever heard of Lobsang Rampa? Huh? Yeah. You heard of Lobsang Rampa. Yeah. Yeah, the third eye. <laughs> third eye guy. Lobsang Rampa was an English seaman, merchant seaman, who wrote, who traveled wildly, uh, widely in the Orient. He was English. And so he went to India, Tibet, Nepal, all these places. And uh, he had an amazing imagination, and he wrote these books, spiritual books. He became a multimillionaire. He was just a normal guy who wrote, who, who was a seaman on boats, going back and forth from England to India, and he, he journeyed to Nepal and Tibet and various places, and he wrote these books. He he became a multimillionaire in the forties and fifties from writing those books. And in one of those, he, he talked, he, he, the Shangri-La, you've heard of Shangri-La? Yeah, all this stuff. He invented this mythical place where, you know, people believed it was actually there because, you know, it was before jet travel and all that sort of thing. So they actually thought there was this place in Tibet, you know, where everybody was like floating around in the air and it was all flowers and all this shit, you know. He, he created this huge fantasy for people, spiritual fantasy, and they loved it. And in one of them, he said that if you want to know who you are, you need to have your third eye opened. And your third eye is here, but it's under your skin. And you can't just get open it. So you have to go to Tibet and you have to get an operation. <laughs> and then, <yeah. laughs> then, then the third eye comes out and then you get to see non-dual reality, something like that. People believed it. Huh? Thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. He got extremely rich writing this rubbish. Huh? <laughs> yeah, there are actually people who read a hole in their forehead. Yeah, yeah. I don't doubt it. <laughs> there, huh? Yeah, no, I... I there's, a, there's a guy who had an accident, and by accident he... He, had, he has a, a hole, like a, a, a one euro dollar <laughs> coin here yeah. on his forehead, and you can see it because uh, the skin, the skin is uh, uh, it's 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 not it's not really open, but yeah, yeah. there is no no bone underneath. Underneath it, it yeah. And he travels around and tells about his how, <laughs> how his life has changed since this operation. How cool it is now. Yeah, there was a bunch of group in Birch, California, who went for lobotomies. You know, they had their their part of their brain taken out, mm -hmm. the part that makes you you uh, worry, mm -hmm. huh? 
because they said we're living on the edge now. We're, we're this is real spirituality. We're, we're not gonna like worry about the future and all that sort of thing. They went to Mexico. It was cheap and and had these lobotomies and had part of their brain taken out. They were like zombies. The whole group of them. They all lived together and they were very famous at one time. Because they were going to create the spiritual vision, you know. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Anyway. So, so Krishna says, it's impossible to see this. What, do you, what does that mean? It's impossible. You need a third eye. It means you can't see it physically. It means this is just knowledge. Okay. The one whose grace destroys all sorrow showed his transcendent form as the sovereign Lord of everything and said, Behold, hundreds and thousands of my various divine forms in many shapes and colors. See all the elemental powers, earth, wind, fire, and sky. Observe the sun, moon, and stars, and all the subtle forces playing in the universe, myriad wonders never revealed before. See everything moving and unmoving, united in my limitless body, and anything else you wish to see. Arjuna saw Krishna's infinite body smeared with sandal paste, adorned with celestial malas and shining ornaments. He observed countless faces looking in every direction, with each, count, each with countless mouths and eyes. He saw millions of hands held aloft, gripping wondrous objects and extraordinary weapons. Should a thousand suns burst forth simultaneously in the sky, it would be but a faint reflection of the radiance of the self. Arjuna saw an infinite diversity of objects united as one in the body of the Lord. Overcome with awe, his head bowed, hair standing on end and his hands clapped in salutation, he spoke the following words. In your body, O Lord, I see the powers of nature, the myriad creatures of the world, the Creator on his lotus throne, the celestial sages, and the shining angels. You have infinite forms and the ETs and the ascended masters. <laughs> you have, sorry, you have. <laughs> no, just jo I'm just joking. Okay. <laughs> That's the modern people who see these things, ETs and, and, and ascended masters and all this stuff. They're in that Pratibhasika dimension. You have infinite forms with infinite arms, legs and mouths and eyes looking in every direction. There is no beginning, middle or end to your cosmic form. I see you with a bejeweled golden crown holding a mace and a discus in a blaze of awareness so brilliant, I can hardly look at you. You cannot be known as one knows objects. I now completely appreciate you as the imperishable, limitless self, the one to be known. You are the support of the whole universe, and yet you are unaffected by it. You lay down and protect the eternal moral and physical laws by which the creation operates. You are eternal, 
complete being. You have no beginning, middle, or end. Your endless arms embrace everything. The sun and the moon are your eyes, and your face, radiant with the fire of awareness, illumines the whole cosmos. You pervade the space between heaven and earth in every direction. The three worlds tremble at the sight of this wondrous, frightening form of yours. Indeed, the heavenly hosts enter into you. Some are frightened and pray with joined palms. <coughs> Great sages and yogis praise you profusely. The five elements, the sun, the moon, and the stars, the angels, <coughs> guardians of the universe, divine healers, the fathers, the self-realized, and even atheists stare at you with amazement. Seeing your incredible form with many faces, eyes, hands, and feet causes people great fear, O oh, mighty armed one, particularly me. <laughs> <coughs> What's his first emotional reaction? Wonder. What's his second emotional reaction? Fear. He's not sure that he's ready to accept this. You cannot imagine how terrifying it is to see someone so huge that they surpass the heavens, someone with millions of devouring mouths and eyes burning with the fire of consciousness. It is deeply disturbing, and I cannot collect myself. These awesome mouths with huge protruding fangs destroying everything in sight completely disorient me. Please, Lord, be merciful. Your voracious mouths eagerly develop all the sons of Dhritarashtra, Bhishma, Drona, and Karma, and all the other kings. He sees them across there. He sees all of his enemies, and now they're in the mouth of Krishna, and Krishna's eating them up, destroying them. Some, their heads crushed by your mighty molars, stick between your teeth. As flood-swollen rivers flow into the ocean and confused moths incinerate themselves in a fire, these great heroes, and indeed all living beings, mindlessly fling themselves into your devouring mouths. You swallow them all and lick your chops over and over again as the universe is scorched by your brilliant, cruel flames. Salutations to you, O exalted among the gods. Please tell me who wears this terrible form. Be gracious and remove this vision. I do not understand why you gave me this experience. <laughs> he just asked for it. <laughs> the, guy, the guy just asked for it. Krishna gives it to him and now he's complaining. Why did you give me this? <laughs> Krishna, Krishna replied, I am time. I lay waste to the worlds. This is death here we're talking. Huh? Everything is in the jaws of death. Death is eating everything up. Time is eating everything up. We're dead when we come here. The day you are born is the day you die. You're just ra racing against time. Time is eating and eating and eating and soon you'll be gone. Well, there's nothing to be done about it. Just a fact. 
even without you to kill them. Even without you to kill them, the warriors standing in the opposing army are doomed. Right? He does never mind. He says, if you don't kill them, huh, they're still doomed. He already said that earlier. They're going to die anyway. Hmm? Christian is all worried about, uh, Arjuna is all about worried about killing them. And Christian says, don't worry, they're dead anyway. Why are you worried about killing them? Huh? He said, even without you to kill them. He's not telling him to kill them to, because he can't get somebody else to kill them. Somebody else will kill them for sure. If it isn't Arjuna, he's telling Arjuna he's got to kill him because he's got to what? Work out his karma and his dharma so he can get moksha. That's why he's telling him to kill him, not because he needs somebody to kill him. Because the next, he'll just, Ishwara will just find somebody else to, re to rectify the, the adharma that's operating in the world. So, you know, he doesn't care. Therefore, stand and conquer, destroy your enemies. And enjoy a prosperous kingdom. Destroy your enemies means your bad thoughts. Okay? <laughs> destroy your negative thoughts of self-limitation. Is what he's saying here. But they're doomed anyway. Huh? But be the instrument of my destruction. Drona, Bhishma, Jayatrata, and Karna, and all their fighters are as good as dead. Fear not and fight. Or Arjuna, his palms folded and his limbs trembling, saluted Krishna and spoke in a voice choked with emotion. It's quite natural, Krishna, that the world rejoices and sings your praises. Demons fly in fear, and the saints extol your glories. O Lord, they should surrender to you because you are even greater than the Creator. He's talking about Ishwara 1 here. Not Ishwara too. Creator's Ishwara too. You are the God of gods, the one in whom the worlds exist, beyond cause and effect. Before creation you were here, and now you fill it with being. Everything resolves in you. You are the knower, and what is to be known, and the ultimate abode. Your forms are endless. You are the Lord of the winds, the Lord of death, the Lord of fire, the Lord of water, and the presiding deity of the moon. You are the creator and the uncreated creator of the creator. Honor and glory to you a thousand times, salutations a thousand times. I bow in front of you, I bow in back of you, and on all sides. You have infinite, all-pervading power. You are everything. Please, <laughs> please forgive any rash statements or slights or inappropriate jests that I, I have made when I did not know who you were. He's afraid Krishna's going to turn his, uh, his wrath on Arjuna. I'm going to destroy him. Sorry. Because <laughs> Arjuna made some little statements here and there throughout the Gita kind of digs at, at uh, Krishna. There are subtle things that you wouldn't get just from reading this. You have to know the background and the way he used words and so forth and so on. And they were friends. So you know how friends are. You joke with your friends and you say things, you know, and your friends take it lightly and it's all right, you know, to say these things. 
but suddenly he finds out who who his friend is, huh? And he's got a little different, uh, a little more respect here for his guru. He said, "You are you are difficult to know. <laughs> your huh? Your glories are unrivaled. You are the father of everything movable and immovable. You are the first teacher. In the three worlds, no one equals you, nor is anyone superior to you." Therefore, bless me and forgive me as a father forgives a son, a friend a friend, and a lover a lover. O Lord, I am happy to see what no one has seen before, but I am also overwhelmed with fear. Please assume that pleasing form of yours once again and appear before me wearing your crown with the scepter and discus in your hands, O you of countless forms. Krishna said, Because you are my friend, I have revealed my original radiant form for the first time. Not by the study of Vedas, or by religious rituals, nor by charity or severe austerities can anyone other than you see me in this form, O bravest of the Kurus. Do not be frightened and confused by this awesome form of mine. Now see me in my normal form form. Then Krishna appeared in his human form and Arjuna became cheerful once more. Krishna continued, You have seen what it is difficult to see. Even the gods desire this vision. As I just mentioned, I cannot be seen in this form through the study of Vedas, ascetic practices, charity, or worship. You alone have seen me in this way. But with a devotion in which there is no other, it is possible to see and know and enter into me. Those who dedicate their actions to me because I am their only goal, those who are free from attachment and enmity, come to realize who I am. You know, death is part of life. Death is change. Death is time. It's part of life. You can't fight it. There's no there's no fighting it. You have to accept your mortality. Stop trying to escape it. You know, and it's so hard to accept that, isn't it? Because we love life. And you're going to have to let go of your life one day. It's just a fact. So somehow you need to become comfortable with it. With death. Death means change. Every minute some part of you is dying. Every second something's dying. Something's disappearing. And one day you're going to lose your life. So, well, understand it, accept it, see the truth in it, see how natural it is and how inevitable it is, and be happy with it. Arjuna can't be happy with it. He doesn't, he doesn't want to accept this, see? He's saying, take this away. <laughs> don't tell me about this. I don't want to hear this. 
I don't want to see my friends dead. I don't want to see my guru dead. I don't want to see my wife and kids dead. I don't want to see that all that. I'm attached. I need these things, please. And everything you value is going to be taken away. And there's no point in, in having any false value with any of that. See the value in yourself. And then you can accept this. That's what he's saying. See the value in yourself that you're the value here. That the objects that are in time, that are changing, cannot give you any lasting satisfaction. They're all going to be torn away from you. The only thing that remains is you, eternal consciousness, always present, always aware. That's all that ever there ever is, is you. So you need to like rely on that for your for your security. Not on these changing things, because they're all going to be taken away. And even when you think you have them, you don't have them. Because they're all Maya. You're leaning on something that's not real. Hanging on to something that isn't actually real at all. It just looks real. So, so this is a hard thing, he said, Krishna says, this is very hard to accept. Right? He said, I have, you have seen what is very difficult to see. We don't want to accept that. Until you do, you know, you're not going to be free. You're always going to have this fear. And there's no, as Krishna said at the very first, the very, in the second chapter, he said, the wise grieve neither for the dead nor for the living. There's no cause for grief for the dead or for the living. That's all there is. Reality is only dead things and living things. <laughs> Matter and spirit. And there's and, you know, there's no cause for getting upset about any of it. It's totally out of your hands. Nice chapter. So tomorrow, uh, in the morning, we'll take up chapter 12, uh, Devotion. And then we'll, tomorrow and, and uh, Saturday, uh, we'll do 12, 13, 14, uh, 15, 16, and 17, and 18. <laughs> uh, there's some really good stuff. Now we get into the meat now. From 13 to 15, you're going to get the serious meat. You're going to get the pure Vedanta, the Jnana Yoga. Well, we've had it all along, but here and there in bits and pieces. Now now that Arjuna's what? Had the cosmic vision, seen the glories of the Lord, done his, his upasana, his meditations on the forms, and done his karma yoga, now he's ready to get teaching. So then you're going to get the, the Jnana Yoga here. In the end. So that's the big plan for of the Gita. Oh my god, I've got such a mess here. I don't know. Has anybody got any questions? Yeah. Or, huh? uh, the, the big idea uh, uh, or the goal of chapter 11 is to uh, is death, to accept death, and to, uh, to see. Uh, spiritual experience are not necessary. Yeah. Or, or yeah. something else, or can 
No, no, that, that all the ugliness and pain and suffering is, huh? Is to see the necessity of that, see the beauty of that, to accept that. Huh? And that spiritual experience is not huh, required. It's easy to see the beauty as God, right? Huh? You can you see God in a sunset. How beautiful. Or in a beautiful animal. Or in a beautiful stream or a mountain. It's so easy to see God there. There's nothing there. In a beautiful person, in a kind person, in a saint, a guru. That's so easy to see the self there. Huh? But how are you going to see the self in all this ugliness? To understand it there and accept that. That's the point. If you can't, then you, then you still have work to do. Your vision is not non-dual. You, you know, you're, still, you're still stuck in duality. You're not happy with everything. That's the idea. So you have to find a way to like understand that, th- that all the good stuff and all the bad stuff is absolutely necessary here. There's a purpose for everything. That this creation is what a purposeful creation. It's not just a, uh, it's not just a an, um, an accident. Hmm? It's not just an accident. The law of karma is the law of karma. It requires both of these opposites. It requires cause and effect. It requires good and evil. It requires duality. And duality is not going to go away when you realize non-duality. When you realize who you are, duality is not going to disappear. You need to understand this. Hmm? A lot of people think, well, when I realize who I are, then then the, the whole Maya world, poof, is going to disappear. That's what I think that girl was trying to say. She said, I don't exist. She, <laughs> No, there, she's wrong. She's what she meant was she's not real. She does exist. This exists. After enlightenment, this is going to exist. It's just going to be understood to be not real, not permanent. But it's going to keep right on doing. Not suddenly, you know, when you when you realize who you are, suddenly it all just becomes flowers, you know. <laughs> flying from the sky, beautiful flowers, and little tweety birds swinging around, huh? little angels flying here and there. Huh? It's not going to be like that, okay? <laughs> so just give it up. Krishna's going to keep grinding everything up, eating everything up, creating these radiant, beautiful things, creating all this ugliness and pain. It's going to be, this is going to go on. This is always going on. And there's nothing to be done about it except to understand it, see the value of it, and accept it, surrender to it. At the end, what does Arjuna do? First he's in awe of it. Oh my God, this is incredible. And he's scared of it. And then he surrenders. Okay. And he's, okay, I get it. Yes. One question, and uh, and it's not a personification because there are some tra- uh, traditions who do, uh, say it's uh, Krishna, the highest person. Yeah. Krishna as a person does yeah. everything. Yeah. Like in this, uh, yeah, that's what they say. Yeah, that's say about things and something about those are the Dwaitans. That's yeah. the Krishna consciousness people. Those are du- Dwaitis. Dwaitis. 
they they believe they're they're dualists, and they believe that the jiva and Krishna and the self are two separate principles. That that there's there's no union between the, the jiva and awareness, and their idea of of moksha is called samipya, s a m i p y a samipya, and it means closeness. It doesn't mean oneness. It doesn't mean oneness. It means closeness. In other words, they're dualists, and what they say is that. If you follow Vedic Dharma, if you follow the Vedas, and you live a Dharmic life, and follow all the rules, then when you die, you'll go to Vaikuntha. Vaikuntha is heaven. Okay? Just to, and there Krishna is sitting. Okay? There Krishna is, is sporting. He's sitting and playing. And there you get to become one of the gopis. A gopi is somebody who what? Who who plays or or enjoys Krishna. That's the eternal devotee in you. And there are and there and you just play with Krishna endlessly. You get to ex- and they say, why would I want to uh, be Krishna when I can taste Krishna, when I can enjoy Krishna? That's what that's their their theory. So they're not interested in non-duality. They want to maintain a separation always from themselves. That's their view. So those are called those are called Dwightis. And they don't like us. <laughs> Where they call us Mayawadis. Mayawadis are bad guys. <laughs> We're the bad guys. Why are we the bad guys? Because we believe in Maya. Which means what? Our, 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 our idea is what? There's no separation between Jiva and Ishwara. Between Krishna and, and the devotee. That's our view. That there's an apparent separation created by Maya. And that actually Jiva and the, and Jiva and Ishwara are one. That's what Dwight. That's what non non duality means. Brahma Satyam Jagamitya. That means this is Satyam, the truth. This is apparently true. And then it says, Jivo Brahmeva Na Paraha. Jivo Brahmeva Na is not para, not different. There's no difference between what? Jiva and Brahman. Between Krishna and what? Arjuna. There's no difference. So they don't like our idea. And they don't know that you can be one and enjoy at the same time. That's that's the dualistic mindset. In duality, you, you think that if you have light, you don't have darkness. If you think if you have up, you don't have down. If you think you have if you have right, you don't have wrong. Their idea is what? These are opposite principles and they displace each other. But in our view, right and wrong, up and down and all that is in the what? In the apparent reality. And so there's no conflict between what? The self and and 
right and wrong, good and bad, up and down. They're mitya. And the, the example I've used several times, and I think it's a great example. A man dreaming a bright light in a totally dark room. Now there, in, in, one, in the same place, you have two things. You have darkness pervading the whole room, and you have light in that room. And yet, the darkness doesn't cover the light, and the light doesn't, what, reveal the darkness, does it? Yet they're both side by side. They're both right in the same place at the same time. So that means what? Mithya, the object, doesn't what? Conflict with the, the subject, awareness. Just like what? The chair doesn't conflict with the wood, does it? Is there a conflict between the chair and the wood? Is there a conflict between the wave and the ocean? Huh? You got a wave and you got the ocean. Now where's the conflict? Why is there no conflict? Because they're both H2O. They're both water. The wave is water and the ocean's water. Where's the conflict? There's no conflict. But they're Dwightis. They say if you have a wave, you don't have an ocean. If you have an ocean, you don't have a wave. If you're sick, you can't be healthy. But you can be healthy and sick at the same time. They can be in different dimensions. Part of you can be healthy and part of you can be sick. That's called Dwaita. That's the Krishna. That, that's an old, old movement. It's been along forever. And then there's another group of Vedantins. They're called Vishishta Dwaitans. And they're in between the non-dualists, the Ajatawadis, and the Dwaitis. They say there's non-duality, but it's qualified. And that's another story. That's <laughs> the, only the, the, the Vishishta Dwaitans, they believe in moksha, but, but they also believe they're, 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 they're qualified non-dualists. In other words, they think that the jiva is actually has a certain degree of reality. And non-dualists say it doesn't. And therefore they think the jiva has to do certain things like practice bhakti once it's got the knowledge to what? Verify the knowledge. They say there is moksha and there is moksha for the jiva but the jiva has to do certain things once it's received the knowledge. But the, the non-dualists say no. The knowledge is moksha. And if you don't understand it it's not because the knowledge doesn't work or you're not free. It's because you're not qualified. So then you have to qualify so they're closer, but they have an arguments with us too. And if you want to get, uh, I have a new book coming out called uh, Inquiry into Existence. And in that book, uh, that those ideas will be explained to some degree. The Vishishtadvaita. It's the most advanced text. So it will soon come out. So look on the website for that. And... Uh, it's very advanced. If you can't understand it, that's okay. You keep it, keep it the Gita, keep it the other texts until you're ready. Then you'll get it. But some of you here should be able to uh, assimilate that text. So anyway, so that's the story. Okay. See you later. See you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the talk of James Wards on the Bhagavad Gita. 
recorded at Yoga Vidya Bad Meinberg near Hannover in Germany. More information on shiningworld.com and yoga-vidya.org.